Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And also, I'm the author of children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. In August, we indulged in a lengthy conversation with one of our favorite guests, Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is a behavioral analyst. She teaches at West Virginia University, where she has recently taken on a new role. She is now the chair of the Department of Behavioral Analysis. This is part three of our conversation with Claire. If you remember, earlier in the year, we had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Joe Lang, in which we talked about schedules of reinforcement. Joe gave us a lot to mull over, and his conversation generated for us a lot of questions. So, like a movable feast, we asked Claire to spend an afternoon with us talking about schedules, which was sort of what we talked about, but we ended up talking about a lot more than that. We began in episode 248 by asking Claire to define shaping. What is shaping? I know what I mean when I use that term, but am I using it in the same way that a behavioral analyst would use that term? We continued the discussion into episode 249. Then we took a break to mark our 250th episode. And so now we're back with Claire. And in this episode, what we're really going to focus on is language. How we define the words that we use all the time. And that in a way we just take for granted. We assume that we know what what we mean by them. And that everybody else understands those same meanings and uses the term in the same way. Language matters. So I'm going to introduce this segment in a playful sort of a way. A few episodes back, I announced that I have just published a children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. If you're just hearing about this, do visit my website, theclickercenter.com, and my blog, theclickercenterblog.com, to learn more. You can order the book through my website and also through Amazon. I introduced Teddy's to the Rescue by talking about some of the books that I encountered at an early age and that had a huge impact on my life. Certainly C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, beginning with the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was read to me for the very first time when I was three years old, was hugely important. And something else that I grew up with was the work of Flanders and Swan. I suspect that only a very few of you listening to this know who I'm talking about. I'll just say that before there was Monty Python and the Flying Circus, there was At the Drop of a Hat and At the Drop of Another Hat. And these were performances given by Michael Flanders and Donald Swan. Their songs were what I listened to as a small child. This is what I grew up with as my background music. And their work has a very direct link to the conversation that we're having today with Claire. So we're going to begin with Michael Flanders as he introduces a song 
on the law of thermodynamics from at the drop of a hat. One of the great problems of the world today is undoubtedly this problem of not being able to talk to scientists because uh, we don't understand science. They can't talk to us because they don't understand anything else, poor dears. This problem, I think it was uh, C.P. Snow uh, first raised it, uh, Sir Charles Snow in private life, uh, in, his, um, in his books uh, Science and Government and so on. Mind you, I haven't read it. I'm, I'm waiting for the play to come. <laughs> he says quite rightly, he says, he said, it's no good going up to a scientist and saying to him, as you would to anybody else, you know, good morning, how are you, lend me a quid, and so on. I mean, you just, you just glare at you, or make a rude retort, or something. <laughs> no, you, you have to speak to him in language that he'll understand. I mean, you go up to him, you say something like, um, Ah, H2SO4, Professor. <laughs> don't, uh, don't synthesize anything I wouldn't synthesize. <laughs> And, and the reciprocal of pi to your good wife. <laughs> now, this, this he will understand. Snow says that nobody can consider themselves educated who doesn't know at least the basic language of science. I mean, things like Sir Edward Boyle's Law, for example. <laughs> the greater the external pressure, the greater the volume of hot air. <laughs> simple. The second law of thermodynamics, this is very important. I was somewhat shocked the other day to discover that my partner not only doesn't know the second law, he doesn't even know the first law of thermodynamics. <laughs> Going back to first principle, very briefly, thermodynamics, of course, is derived from two Greek words, thermos, meaning hot, if you don't drop it, and <laughs> dynamics, meaning dynamic work. And thermodynamics is simply the science of heat and work and the relationships between the two. As laid down, in the laws of thermodynamics, which may be expressed in the following simple terms. After meet The first law of thermodynamics. Heat is work and work is heat. Heat is work and work is heat. Very good. The second law of thermodynamics. Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Language matters, and being able to understand scientists matters even more today than it did in the 1950s when Michael Flanders and Donald Swan first performed their work. So the conversation that follows is about language, definitions, and being understood by one another. So we've been using the word requirement a great deal. It's requirement synonym with criteria. Or are they different? I have. I do not normally use the word requirement as much as I have used it in this podcast. It's a lovely, <laughs> it's a lovely word, though. And I, it I, is I, a lovely word. I, I like it. There's, there's, it, it's got a lot of clarity to it. Maybe mm. because we haven't used it a lot. It just seems Maybe. like, oh, what a nice, what a nice, clear word. I like it. It's a word that we understand from common usage. It is. And it, it has like the contingency part in it. It's required. I like that piece of it, Dominique, that the, that the word requirement does imply that it's part of a bigger picture. It may have some advantages over movement cycle by way of movement cycles don't necessarily seem connected just by the word <clears throat> to a bigger picture. But when I think about when I think about requirement, requirements 
Well, if you looked at it in the literature, you'd, you'd hear people talk about schedule requirements too, which would be like, there are five of these responses that are required. We've been talking about it a little bit more on the movement cycle side of like, yeah. what is the response that you're looking for? What is the requirement at this particular and is, moment? Is that different from criteria? So in, in the animal lab, they talk about criterional responses and sub-criterion responses, you know, because we should have complicated words. So yes. criterional responses are the ones that close the switch. So all, almost all of our operant chambers have to register a response, a switch closes. Like when the rat presses the lever, the way that that gets recorded is that it closes an electrical switch, right? That records, okay. that sends it to the computer or when the pigeon pecks the key. So a sub-criterion response would be like, I tapped the lever, but it didn't go, I didn't press it hard enough to actually close the switch. And so I think that if you were to if you were just if you were to spend a lot of time talking to behavior analysts, they might think about the criterion as whether or not the behavior fits fully uh, with their definition of the behavior, right? Like does the switch fully close? But there are also reinforcement criteria. So I think this is where it gets it gets muddy, yeah, this no. idea of this interaction between the response and the reinforcement schedule. Language matters. I mean, we started with language. We started with shaping. What, what does shaping mean? And we've all latched on to this oh, requirement. It's a it's an interesting fun word. Did it use. did it seem like a synonym to you to criteria? Because it seemed to me like that. I'm always ready to plunge and courageously say <laughs> what I heard, and I'm like, oh, you're gonna make a fool of yourself again. But that's okay because I think. I can express some questions that people have in their heads. <laughs> they feel like I could use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Putting my animal trainer's hat, just the one I wear all the time, on, they feel as though in teaching I could use them interchangeably. And so that was my question. Are there nuances to these terms that I'm not aware of where they would not be used interchangeably? Well, I think you could talk about the response requirement and the schedule requirement. And that gets us right back to Dominique's question, right? Of like, am I changing, yeah. mm -hmm. am I changing the response requirement and saying essentially like, like I am going to take, and I think legless is maybe a good example of this, right? Like, so I'm, am I asking a change in response requirement would be, am I asking for a variation in the form of the leg like the movement is originating from the correct muscle group and we're holding ourselves up appropriately and like lifting doing a, a really balanced leg lift or am I changing the schedule requirement and I could do both or one or the other if I was changing the schedule requirement right it means that like let's say that my current movement cycle or response requirement is like hoof leaves ground, hoof goes back on the ground. You know, I could get those and change my schedule requirement and say, well, now you have to do three of them in a row, right? And then I'm changing my schedule requirement. Could you equally say my schedule criteria? Would I be saying something different? I think I would use those interchangeably in that way. 
So if I'm, if I'm, although I would just say schedule, I think instead of schedule criterion, I don't know why I would say schedule requirement when I would otherwise just say schedule. In one, in the schedule, when it's, when it's an intermittent schedule, some behaviors that do meet criteria are not reinforced. True. Whereas, so it's, it's a difference. There's a difference there. It's, it's, so I have the criteria has been met, but there's no reinforcement. That's a schedule. Whereas if my requirement is three, two doesn't meet criteria. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. I've been working on a terms book with Charlie Catania, whose name I mentioned earlier, and for a long time. So as I've as we've been talking about this, I've got I've got our draft pulled up on the side. And I was like, what, what have we been saying about these words? I don't know what we've been saying. And it's interesting that for criterion, there's not an entry for requirement, although maybe I should add one. For criterion, the entry that we have is criterion for shaping. And that is where the entry for criterion is. And it says essentially just that there are schedules that you can use for shaping, mm. like percentile schedules, and that criteria shift during shaping. And then there's a note from one of us to the other that says, maybe we should define criterion independently from criterion for shaping, which it sounds like maybe we should. <laughs> yes. And, and maybe the criterion is the requirement. Who knows? <laughs> because from a teaching point of view, if, if I have somebody who's not as familiar with the word criterion, which is, you know, it's not a commonly used word. It's not as commonly used as requirement. And I want to help them to understand how we're using that term from an, in a training setting, it can it helps to be able to go to the not not always the dictionary, but sometimes it can help to go to the thesaurus, and that that can be clarifying. So to be able to refer to requirements and criteria might help from a teaching point of view, but then. This is also how we get into these muddled situations where I'm talking about shaping, you're talking about shaping, but we're not talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah, behavior, I think you know, behavior. Oh, what yeah, are we talking yeah. about? <laughs> yeah. And you know, after the, I was wondering even if I could properly define contingency after all this. You know, what is proper? Well, in a way, I think way, it's it's what's accepted by your community to some extent, right? And so the, I think it's interesting to think about like what is the proper way for us to use any of these words because it implies that there is a right way and there's not a right way. And I think you know there it might be the case that there are multiple right ways to talk about it based on who you're talking to and what's going to make sense to them. You know, like I. I speak very differently when I talk, or I try to speak very differently when I talk to my peers who are researchers in behavior analysis. And when I'm training my students and I'm trying to teach them to use technical language than I do when I try to explain behavior change to principals, right? Because what makes sense to them is different. And so it depends on who you're trying to talk to. I think the barrier comes in when people use the same words in different communities 
mm-hmm. and they end up meaning different, different, things. different things. And that happens everywhere. You know, like what is a flat to someone who lives in the UK and what is flat to someone who lives in the US are different. Yes. One is a place you live and the other is you're calling the AAA to come and fix your tire. Yeah, absolutely. And that doesn't necess- that doesn't mean that one of them is the correct way to use the term. It just means that depending on who you're talking to, you've got to be clear about what you mean. Mm. And behavior analysts aren't always well trained to do that. You know, to be clear about what we're talking about when we are talking to people who may have some understanding of the terms but maybe not the same as what we do. Yeah. So we you almost have to start a conversation with the definitions and then the abbreviations. In in my world, we have the why would you leave me lessons, which is a mouthful, especially when you're writing it out. It takes a long time to write it out. So we just put the initials down. But if at the start of a conversation with somebody, I have not said the why would you leave me lesson instead of the WW. LM. I've lost them. So I need to write it out at least once. And if it's a person who is not familiar with my work, to give a brief description of what that lesson is, and not make that assumption that, of course, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a piece that we leave out all too often. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that you've done a really nice job of that behavior analysts have done a terrible job of is you named your lesson, why would you leave me or hip, shoulder, shoulder, or three flip three. And I'm not necessarily, if I don't know that I'm not necessarily going to walk into that conversation thinking that I know what you're talking about. Right. And instead behavior analysts have used words like reinforcement and punishment which mean things out in the world that they may not mean to me. When I work with teachers and I talk about, or consequences, gosh, consequences is the worst. Yeah. You know, when I, you know, consequences are necessarily like really terrible things. And that's not how I mean the word. I just mean the word is like something that happens after behavior that affects whether the behavior happens again or not. So reinforcers are consequences, but that's a really hard idea for people who are not trained in behavior analysis to grasp because colloquially it means something else. And the same thing, I think, with some of the other terms that behavior analysts use. We're accessible, but maybe sometimes in a wrong, in the wrong way. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, it's interesting because I had this discussion with someone, this very discussion, and she was saying, you know, you should, all these, these names that you give to various things, like the why would you leave me lesson? It's well, grownups. We keep <laughs> yeah. saying going to grownups as if yes. everyone knew what it Yes. And, and she was saying, grown up is great. It's almost like it's a private club. It makes it oh, inaccessible yes. because people don't automatically know what it is that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, well, it's an interesting point. And maybe I should have used different names. And then I, as I thought about it more, it's exactly what you were just saying. You don't know what it is. So grownups are talking. It's not immediately obvious what that phrase is referring to. Mm-hmm. And so we get to define it rather than having you assume that you think you know what it is that we're talking about 
and just recreating same old, same old from previous history, when actually what we're looking for is something that's very, very, very different. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it can seem like it's a totally foreign country. In, in teaching clinics and so on, I always thought, yeah, it's, it's, if somebody is, is, for example, a dressage instructor, they can go in and say, okay, we're going to work on shoulder in. And all of their clinic participants who've come to the clinic will nod their head and say, yes, we know what shoulder in is. When I'm teaching a clinic, everything that I teach is foreign or it's coming from toolboxes that are not in common usage. Clicker training was not in common usage. The, the rope handling that I teach, not in common usage. The use of lateral flexions in the way that I teach them, not common usage. All of this has to be explained, which is why I can't just write one tiny little thin book and say, here it is, or, or set up one, one tiny little online clinic and say, there you have the sum total of everything. No, I have to write book after book after book. <laughs> and they get thicker with each, with, with each book that I write and the same thing with the clinics. But I think there is a huge advantage to that in that, yes, there are some things that you can carry forward into this work and, and you'll be fine. But when we are looking at training that is cooperative in the way that we are working with the horses, it is so very different from the repertoires that most of us have learned in the past that there will be major changes and changing a lot of the language helps to shift that significantly. Mm -hmm. And so that is a place where I think we do get tripped up when we're talking about punishment and mm -hmm. it doesn't mean the same thing to you that it means to the classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it definitely doesn't have a retribution flavor to it. You know, I no. think punishment colloquially has this very retribution-y flavor to it, and that's not how behavior analysts talk. I mean, retribution is its own thing. Bribery is its own thing. Yeah. Reinforcement and punishment are something else, and I think they get all rolled together in the common parlance, which can be a challenge to try to, to explain even these fundamental concepts to people. Yeah. And once you get through that hurdle, you're, you're way ahead of the game. You know, when you start understanding that punishment has a technical definition, reinforcement has technical definitions, and that we as trainers can become familiar with those definitions and that they do indeed help us to be better trainers, which is the reason that we talk to behavior analysts and pull them away from all the other crazy things that I'm sure are going on in your life because you are now the, the department head. And we've probably consumed enough of your afternoon, even though there are tons more questions, but I feel guilty about pulling you too far away from, from your role. But may, maybe in having this conversation, we'll get a few people that are saying, oh, behavioral analysis. Yes, that sounds interesting. So if you, if we'll do one last quick question. Or, or, or thing to talk about. So if somebody who is 
exploring, what do I want to do when I grow up? And they are exploring at that stage where they are looking at courses of studies and so on. What is it that they would find at your university? And what is what does a behavior analyst do? Oh, what, um, what does it what does it prepare? So if they were to yeah. if they were to come, if they were to say, "This is what I want to study," and then after university, what will they be able to do with that degree? The the fun thing about that is that there are so many things. So I'll just tell you what some of our graduates are doing. Because maybe so that. First of all, what is the degree? So our degree is in behavior analysis. So we have a PhD program in behavior analysis. We also at WVU have an undergraduate certificate in behavior analysis. We're one of the only programs in the world that has a full undergraduate certificate in behavior analysis. But I'm going to talk mostly about the graduate degree. But I, you know, I'll happily fall down any of these rabbit holes if you want to. So our graduates do so many different things. I think when people, the most, the thing that behavior analysis is most known for now, I think, is working with children with disabilities. And we do have some graduates who go on to work with children with disabilities. So they are, they're directors of clinics or they are helping to oversee and and teach people who are, who are changing the behavior of individuals who need more structure in their environments than most typical children's environments provide. But the number of things that you can do with behavior analysis is limited only by the extent of behaving organisms. So, and that's pretty broad. So we have graduates who are working on public policy and substance use and dependence. So how do we develop systems-wide change to help prevent overdose? How do we develop systems-wide change to make it so that the contingencies around acquiring and using other drugs that might not be illegal, but like smoking cigarettes, for example, how should we develop regulation for cigarettes versus e-cigarettes versus other forms of behavior? We've got graduates who are working in substance use treatment directly. So there's a form of treatment for addiction to illicit substances called contingency management that is entirely based on behavior analysis. It's essentially building clean loops for people who have been exposed to dirty needles. So it's how do you take people who often don't have a lot of skills to be able to earn a good living in other ways and then make often it's a it's a workplace contingency so clean drug screens get you access to a therapeutic workplace access to a therapeutic workplace gets you training opportunities and opportunities to build new skills at a pretty high wage decent wage and then that gets opens doors for you to have permanent employment and be looped into other perhaps more habilitative contingencies that are put you in contact with better reinforcers. We had a graduate who used to be a director at Disney's Animal Kingdom working on preventing extinction of endangered species. So how do you set up habitats for endangered species so that they breed and that those offspring survive? 
and teach them in captivity the things that they need to know to be able to survive when released from captivity. We have graduates who are working in instructional design. So how do you teach children and adults new skills and ways that scaffold off of their previous skills? We've got faculty members who are working in physical activity. How do we get people to build healthy living habits and exercise better and more often? And how do we prevent relapse to physical inactivity once we get people going? How do we keep them going and maintain that behavior? How do we set up all those schedules to make sure that when we jumpstart new physical activity, that it doesn't just get exposed to extinction when the supports start to fall out from underneath it? And then we've got a lot of folks who are just working still on basic process. So there's so much still that we don't fully understand about the complexities of behavior environment interactions. Some of our our folks who are working on basic processes are working on social behavior with pigeons and rats and How do complex contingencies that foster altruism work? And how do we take what we know from that and build altruistic communities? We've got grads who, we've got a graduate who runs our therapy dog program here at WVU now. So teaching therapy dogs and matching therapy dogs and teaching the people the skills that they need to interact with with therapy animals. And we've got another one who's doing pet behavior more broadly. The sky's the limit, really. What do you want to do? And (laughs) if it involves, if it involves teaching people or animals to do things, I think a foundation in behavior analysis does that for you. Yes. Great foundation. That was a long list. Sorry. No, it needed to be a long (laughs) list because I, I, because behavioral analysis is, I think, it's a hidden field. It's an undervalued field, or at least it seems to be. Yes. So. Well, one of my one of my colleagues named Tom Critchfield co-authored a paper called, I think, the A, a to Z's of behavior analysis. And it is literally an A to Z list of the things that have been assessed or intervened upon by a behavior analyst and gives this huge array of examples of different kinds of things that you can do. So it's great. And it is really about figuring out how contingencies work. Yeah. All of it, all of it boils down to how do contingencies work? How do we look at the ones that are happening out in the world and analyze them in ways that we can help promote success of learners? How do we create new contingencies that help promote success of learners? It provides opportunities to interface with fun animal trainers like the two of you. <laughs> That's right. So very neat. So who knows? Maybe people will, will say, oh, we need to take a look. And, and become... Yeah. And if they do that, I would really encourage folks to go to the Association for Behavior Analysis International. They have a website. They have an accreditation program. So I will, one of the things that I'll warn people who are interested about is that although behavior analysis broadly and all the ways that I've been talking about it is pretty hidden in the treatment of issues related to autism spectrum disorders, it's become pretty, pretty popular. And there is 
in the last five or 10 years or so, most states now provide insurance coverage for the clinical service provision of applied behavior analysts for autistic individuals, which has opened a big market. And the big market has meant some predatory programs. So kind of degree mill programs that say that they're going to teach you how to be a good behavior analyst. Really, you're probably just going to pay a lot for a degree and not have a, a value for your dollar. So if someone's interested in an advanced degree in behavior analysis, I would strongly encourage that they look at the Association for Behavior Analysis International's list of accredited programs. Those programs are all independently vetted by behavior analysts. They have rigorous standards. And so to make sure that you're getting your value, obviously you want to come to West Virginia University. But if you decide that that's not possible for you, definitely look at the list of accredited programs. It's going to point you in a really good direction at all levels of education. So there's bachelor programs, there's master's degree programs, and there's doctoral programs. And some of, most of them are going to be in person, but some of them have online options too. So Dominique, but how do you feel about this definition of contingency? Okay. As you asked about 45 minutes ago, the conditions under which a response produces a consequence. Yeah. So now we need to define the conditions. <laughs> what are the well, conditions? What does that imply? What's included in the conditions? So it says, for example, in a fixed interval schedule, the reinforcer is contingent on a response of a given force, topography, or other form, as well as on the passage of time. An organism is said to come into contact with a contingency when its behavior produces the consequences of the contingency. So the, the contingency just is how a response gets reinforced. And so the conditions would be the antecedent, the environmental arrangement, and then the schedule. So why would you not start with the simpler definition? And then the, on it. what you just said, the the contingency is whatever you just said that very quick little sentence at the very end you know this this is a this is the behavior trap that I fell down yeah. when we started talking about behavior and the definition of behavior and goodness if Taylor didn't open a giant wormhole when she asked me what the environment was and I still don't know so I think it's how much did I tell you about the behavior definition when I fell down that you didn't oh oh Okay, so you have, do you have well, I've, I've, two? I've, What's the behavior? I have tons of time, so don't <laughs> worry about that. I, I just don't want to impose on your time. But I, well, yeah, this is, but this is interesting. Going. So I don't remember who it was that, I, that got me started on whether or not behavior analysts know what behavior is. We're about to head even further into the weeds as we examine the definitions of words that are in common usage, both in behavioral analysis and in animal training. As we explore these definitions, what we're going to discover is that there are practical, real-world implications. So looking at the nuances of the definitions and the ways that they have changed over time is well worth doing. Before I leave you today, I began this episode with Flanders and Swan, and so we'll end by playing the rest of the first and second law of thermodynamics. But before I start the music, remember, you can also find my new book, Modern Horse Training, and my newest edition, my children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue, 
by going to my website or by ordering them through Amazon. And as always, do please leave a five-star review on Amazon. Your good reviews are hugely appreciated, and they make it easier for others to find the books. So until next time, train well and have fun with your training. The first law of thermodynamics. Heat is work and work is heat. Heat is work and work is heat. Very good. The second law of thermodynamics. Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Heat won't pass from a cooler to a hotter. Heat won't pass from a cooler to a hotter. You can try it if you like, but you'd far better not. Uh. You can try it if you like, but you'd far better not. Uh. Cause the cold in the cooler will get hotter as a ruler. Because the hotter body's heat will pass to the cooler. Because the hotter body's heat will pass to the cooler. First law, heat is work and work is heat and work is heat and heat is work. Heat will pass by conduction and the heat will pass by conduction. Heat will pass by convection. Heat will pass by radiation. And that's a physical law. Heat is work and work's a curse. And all the heat in the universe is gonna cool down. Because it can't increase. Then there'll be no more work and there'll be perfect peace. Really? Yeah, that's entropy, man. <laughs> all because of the second law of thermodynamics, which lays down that you can't pass heat from a cooler to a hotter. Try it if you like, you far better not. Because the cold in the cooler will get hotter as a ruler. On the body's heater will the pass to the cooler. Oh, you can't pass heat from a cooler to a hotter. Try it if you like, you far better not. Because the cold in the cooler will get hotter as a ruler. That's a physical law. Oh, I'm hot. Hot? That's because you've been working. Oh, beetles, nothing. <laughs> That's the first and second law of thermodynamics.